0: Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer's Sermon Podcast. The readings appointed for this sermon are from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 1 through 12, and 17 through 18, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, and Psalm 27. The wisdom to know the difference in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Can you all hear me? Okay, you can? Okay, good. Today we're going to play a little game called, Why is Jesus in Trouble This Time? <laughs> what has he done? That's kind of all of Lent, is just stories that go, "Oh, what did he? Why do they want to kill him now? And they do, they want to kill him. And we're going to talk a little bit about what Jesus, what's going on in this story that, that draws uh, Herod's ire and also the Pharisees' ire towards Jesus and why Jesus gets uh, so confrontational. What's going on here? Why is Jesus in trouble? Well, on one level, the answer is very simple. Jesus is in trouble because he keeps saying things that people don't want to hear. Jesus like all of the prophets of Israel, stands before his people and tells God's truth when it's beautiful, God's truth when it's comforting, and also God's truth when it is scary, God's truth when it holds people accountable. And that is what Jesus has been doing. So the Pharisees come to him and they say, Herod wants to kill you. And he does want Jesus dead. Because Herod understands, Herod understands that Jesus' words are dangerous. Herod is the king of Israel, and of course, he's only king of Israel because the Roman empire allows him to be king. He's a vassal king. He's allowed to rule over, he's allowed to rule over Israel so long as he keeps Israel in line with the empire and with the guidelines of that Roman empire so that they follow specific rules and stay within a status quo and don't cause any trouble, then they can be their own people. Jesus' words are a challenge to the empire because Jesus' words challenge power. Jesus' teachings challenge power the way that the world is, and challenge the status quo. And what does Herod want? To keep things the way they are. He's worked hard to get it to that place, and he doesn't want that messed with. Now, if you're at all a student of the Bible, you are probably wondering why the Pharisees are trying to help Jesus out. I don't know about you, but before I even knew what a Pharisee was, I knew they were bad guys. Like, I grew up in the church, I had no idea what Pharisees believed in, I just knew that whenever they showed up, they were were the bad guys, those were the rules, right? They're always in opposition to Jesus. And here they are saying, hey, they're trying to warn Jesus, so we think, are they the good guys? Don't worry, we're not going to upset your apple cart on this one. Pharisees, still the bad guys, okay? They're nervous because they don't like that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. In the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus gathers... This this, His people gathers this discipleship, the people who are following him, and he begins to create this earthly ministry that takes off. People are paying attention to the words, the dangerous words that Jesus speaks. And they're paying attention to the fact that the power of God is found in Jesus because here he is healing all of these people who need healing and caring for all these people that no one else has cared for. And then, according to Luke, once he's got all that in place, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem, the political, religious, and cultural center of his people. And he walks towards Jerusalem. The whole second half of Luke is just Jesus moving towards Jerusalem, knowing full well why he's going and knowing full well what's going to happen to him when he gets there. The Pharisees don't like this. The inevitability of a confrontation with Jesus and the, at the cultural, religious, and political power center of their lives is something they'd like to avoid. The Pharisees themselves are not actually upholders of the status quo the way you and I would think. They are actually in opposition to Herod and what we'd call the Herodians, the, the, the Herod party, as it were. But the Pharisees have a picture of the way that the world is supposed to work. The Pharisees believe that God's Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, will not show up and save Israel until all of the Israelites get their act together and start acting right. Follow the rules and act like the right kind of people. Act like people who deserve to be saved, and then God will save you. Can you imagine why that goes against the way Jesus teaches? Because Jesus, as a prophet of Israel, yes, speaks in a way that holds people accountable, but the prophets of Israel always speak of the unfailing faithfulness of the God who will never let us go and who will deliver on the promise that was forged in that covenant we heard all the way back in Genesis and we heard from that today. The Pharisees and Herod both have a problem with Jesus. And in the reading, it's not the reading, but in the text, right before the text we hear today, when the Pharisees show up and go, maybe you should go somewhere else. It just so happens that Jesus is teaching about the radical inclusivity of God's love. As is consistent with Jesus' message, Jesus is standing up before his people saying, God loves everyone, God loves this world, and all of God's people belong to God, all of God's creation belongs to God, and then he says to his people, and if you don't get that, God will use all sorts of other people to make sure the world knows it. If you, the people of God, are unwilling to be honest and true about the radically inclusive love of God, God will draw people, as Jesus says, from the north and the south and the east and the west and all sorts of places. God will take anyone who is willing to acknowledge the beauty and the belongingness of all of God's creation. Jesus says, he doesn't need just us. If we're not going to do the job, God will find anyone who will. This is incredibly dangerous for the Pharisees. And so they want him gone too. But what happens in the text today, as the Pharisees use this thing about, well, Herod doesn't like you either. They're actually doing something that's really uh, cunning. And, and really, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a good move. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm impressed with the slyness of the Pharisees here. Because what they're really trying to do is get Jesus to declare which side he's on. The side of the Pharisees or the side of Herod and the Herodians. These are two parties in utter opposition to one another. The Pharisees have always assumed Jesus is not with them. You know what that means about him, right? It means he's probably a Herodian. Ew. But if they can get him to see that even Herod wants him dead, maybe he'll finally get on the right side and be a Pharisee. Yeah. The Pharisees place before Jesus a binary. Which one are you? Are you one of us or are you one of them? Who are you? And Jesus, with his very strong language, rejects that binary. And we, we, we have to see that part of the reason Jesus is killed is he rejects the binary that is put before him. Which side are you on? Pick a side. Are you one of the Pharisees? Are you one of the Herodians? Where are you on this? And Jesus chooses a third way. He moves in a different direction. Now Episcopalians, historically we love this idea. We love the idea of Jesus choosing a third way. Oftentimes we love it because it allows us not to proclaim out loud what we actually think about things. We can stay neutral. Jesus didn't pick sides, neither should I have to. This is bad theology, and we've been practicing it for a long time. Jesus is not neutral. On the issue of God's power and presence in the world, Jesus is not neutral. On the issue of justice and who belongs on the inside of a society, on the inside of a culture, Jesus is not neutral. On the issue of who deserves to be cared for and loved and who has dignity within them, Jesus is not neutral. And when Jesus gets in trouble, it's because he refuses to be a moderate. He refuses to be neutral. He speaks openly and plainly that neither side that is presented to him is truly and justly caring for the people in their community. Neither the Herodians nor the Pharisees are truly and justly caring for the people around them drawing people in from the margins, getting rid of margins because we're all in, and honestly and truly reflecting the powerful presence of God and the unconditional love of God that belongs to all people. No group that stands before Jesus is accomplishing that task of bringing people more fully into God's love. Jesus' rejection of that binary is not a stance, a neutral stance. Nobody dies for being neutral. No one gets killed for being a moderate. Jesus insists that all people belong to God and that anyone who speaks in God's name better act like that's true and build communities that reflect the reality of all people's belonging to God. And that's what gets him killed. Jesus is not neutral. There's another temptation here. It's the temptation to think that Jesus is being cynical about politics and about the world in front of him. And so maybe that can validate our own cynicism as well. We love to choose sides. We love to have a binary. If that's a little scary, we love to try to be neutral. And if neither of those things work, cynicism is great, isn't it? so much fun to just throw your hands up and go, well, it's all a mess. What can you do? And Jesus is not taking sides with the Pharisees, but he's calling the king Herod a sly fox, and and basically the the New Testament version of cussing him out. It's, It's as close as Jesus gets, friends, anyway. This is good. This is cynical, right? Okay, I can get in with that. Jesus doesn't pick any sides. Jesus is for himself. We'll just be for ourselves as well. except that Jesus keeps showing up. Jesus keeps speaking the truth, and Jesus stays engaged. I remember, and I don't know why I remember this, friends, but I, was, I remember the town hall debate for the presidential, uh, the presidential debate in 2008 between Senators Barack Obama and John McCain. I remember watching this town hall debate. They both did a very good job. They were both good speakers. And they made a lot of sense, and they were doing a good job. But towards the end, and this was, at the time, by the way, 2008, we thought that was a really divisive time. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, we only knew. We only knew. This woman stands up, and she says, I have a question. Why should we believe either of you? Why should we believe when both of your parties helped get us to the place where we are? Why do we think that one of you and your parties is somehow going to pull us out of this? Senator Obama took the question first, and I was really angry, because the very first words out of his mouth were, I understand your cynicism. I was so mad, because I was like, that's not cynical. It's not cynical to stay engaged and to be part of things. But I'll wait. I'll be patient. Let's see how his answer goes. And then the overall answer was fine. But it started off with that this person is trying to hold us accountable to the truth of who we think we are, and he calls it cynical. Well, here comes Senator McCain. All right, let's see. Maybe he'll do a better job. Very first words out of his mouth. I, too, understand your cynicism. I was so mad because this woman is not cynical. She's trying to hold her leaders accountable for their failures and get them to be honest about the fact that the binary into which we've been living hasn't worked. She didn't leave, she didn't refuse to vote, she didn't not show up to the thing, she wasn't outside picketing or moving to another country. She's at the debate, standing before the next president saying, how are you going to hold us all accountable, and how do we hold you accountable? That's not cynicism. That's engagement. Jesus is not cynical in this story. He cares deeply about the destiny of his people. He cares deeply about Jerusalem. He cares deeply about Israel. He wants his people to know the truth, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for them. And he wants this world through his people to know the power and the presence of God's love. And the binary in which they've chosen to live does not serve the enormity of that love. A rejection of the binary that's placed in front of us is not cynical. And it does not require neutrality. We are Christians. We have a holy vocation in this world to love those this world calls unloved, to draw in those people who are being kicked out, to give voice and and care and dignity to the people who are not being heard, individually and systemically. And we have a responsibility to create a community both in our church and in our neighborhood that reflects the love and justice of God as fully as possible. This will require us to think outside of the binary in which we've been raised. It will require us to make stands and not be neutral. And it will require us to reject cynicism and give ourselves to this world with the same sacrificial love with which God gave his whole life in Jesus. This Lent, maybe the question for us is, do we have the courage to love like that? Do we have the courage to love this world in the way that Jesus does? To see it for what it is. To love it as it is. To reject binaries and neutralities and cynicism and embrace one another with our whole heart in Jesus' name.